Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's Alex Pearson from On Point. Today on our podcast, we start with a Black Locks reporting exclusive about an internal memo that says lives were at risk because we weren't ready for this pandemic. And despite the fact they called for the government, those calls went ignored. We'll also talk about a new research project where they're testing sewage in Durham for signs of COVID in Ontario. And they believe that this can allow them to focus and target neighborhoods that get outbreaks. And we talked to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce about a study they have done about the impacts of COVID-19 and who it is hitting the hardest. And let's just say, it's no longer called a recession. It's been called a she-session. We'll explain. That and more coming up. Let's get started. I've been very clear. The government has no interest in seeing an election this fall. We know that there's still an awful lot of hardship that Canadians are going through. There's still real concerns about a potential second wave of COVID-19. And we need to be vigilant. We need to be there to help Canadians. We need to be there to relaunch our economy. So we have no interest in an election. Mm-hmm. That's why Mr. Trudeau is out campaigning and basically daring the opposition to bring his government down. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, September 9th, and boy, what an eventful day it is turning out to be. Because from we to we is out of business, and uh, that is late-breaking news today. And of course, Justin Trudeau does want this fall election, albeit now he's not going to have his buddies over at WE to help him campaign because the charity is just the latest political collateral damage. Out of business, the Kielberg brothers, the darlings of the left, now join Trudeau's, you know, once most trustworthy finance minister who also is uh, now under a bus. But, you know, without question on this, you know, question about are we going to have an election, I think Trudeau wants to get to the polls sooner than later. And because I think he believes the wee scandal's gone, which it is not, but because he shut down Parliament and now the charity is out of business, he probably thinks, okay, gone are my problems, but they are not. But Trudeau and his advisors are champing at the bit to get to the polls while his numbers are still relatively strong and while his opponent, Aaron O'Toole, remains relatively unknown. And he'll say, of course, he doesn't want an election, but he has to say that because to say otherwise would it would look pretty cynical it would be seen for what it is and that is you know he's using the pandemic for political gain and he did he said it himself he said this is the moment we should seize and so he's just going to continue to tell us things like this and it is the responsible thing to do in a democracy particularly in a minority parliament situation to put that plan forward to ensure that it has the confidence of the House as we move forward. So it will be up to opposition parties to decide whether or not they have confidence in the plan this government's going to put forward to help Canadians and to build a better future. 
Mm-hmm. That's a nifty way to spin it. But, uh, you know, y- you put the onus on the opposition, you make them look like the bad guys, you know, either they support this ideological recovery plan that experiments with Canada's recovery and plunges us into never-ending spending, or they take us into an election no party can really afford and few Canadians have an appetite for, or so the experts tell us. But I actually think there is an appetite for an election. I mean, why should we trust the government that got us into this mess to get us out of it? I mean, sure, the talking point we've heard is that the Trudeau government has done a very good job during this pandemic, but I think lost in the conversation of this whole thing is that they botched it from the start. They ignored warnings from our own scientists, their own scientists, from Chinese doctors who warned the virus is coming. And so they failed to shut the borders to travel from infected zones. And those who raised concerns were called racists. You know, it was the Trudeau government that got rid of the pandemic warning system put in place after SARS because they had, you know, another place their analysts should be. It was the Trudeau government that threw millions of N95 masks and then gave what rest we had to China. And so for weeks, you know, sure, we were told this is all low risk and we are prepared. And that is a lie. It was never low risk. We were never prepared. So why should we then trust this government to fix what they broke? I mean, let's not confuse handing out bags of money as good governing, because even even that has a been a bit screwy. But Trudeau is banking on voters seeing him as the good guy, and it will be the opposition who will take it all away. Our principle from the very, very beginning has been we will be there to help Canadians. And there are people out there who said we shouldn't have helped people first, we shouldn't have uh, been sending money to Canadians right away. Well, I think they're wrong. Yeah, no one said, no one said we shouldn't help. No one. What the conservatives, what economists, what business experts have all said is that the CERB, which put millions of dollars into pockets of millions of people without any rules, it needed some rules so that it wouldn't be exploited and that people would be able to work and employers would be able to bring them back quickly. But months later, I mean, despite ample evidence of, uh, you know, cheaters cheating and businesses unable to get their workers back, there have been no changes to the program. So, sure, good program, but it's broken. And then you look at the other eight programs that Trudeau's government rolled out, you know, the loan programs, the rent relief programs for businesses. I mean, they have been an absolute disaster because most businesses have been unable to qualify because of the way they were structured, because of all the rules. So he keeps saying, you know, we've got your backs. But from my vantage point, he's only got the backs of those who will vote for him. And so on September 23rd, he's going to table a throne speech that promises, you know, the sun, the moon, the sky to everyone, regardless, you know, of all the costs or risk to recovery. And he's hoping the opposition will reject it. Because I think the last thing Trudeau wants is for Parliament to resume, whatever whatever Parliament we have left. He doesn't want questions asked. He doesn't want the investigations to resume, because they will. He doesn't want the economic hit that has not yet hit to reveal itself, because that's when any support he has now will start to evaporate. 
And while the Trudeau government may not be concerned about runaway deficits, a majority of Canadians are. There was recent polling done on this particular issue, and I was actually surprised about it, but half of Canadians asked not only worry about the ballooning deficit, but half of Canadians asked are not confident in this government's recovery plan. They're concerned about it. So I say bring on election. I think a lot of people would welcome it. But again, there are so many things and so many issues at play. It's a bit of a, a gamble. So it could backfire very badly for Mr. Trudeau, could backfire for everybody. But I do think when it comes to the election issue, people should be asking themselves, you know, is this a government that we should be trusting to rebuild the economy? Given all we know. Nonetheless, we'll talk about that tonight. It has been a busy news day as we started off the top. Big news out of the, uh, well, kind of out of Canada because we charity announcing late today it's going to close its canadian operations and of course the darlings of the left uh, brought down by not just their cozy relationship with the trudeau government but a political scandal much of it made by their own making and so this is going to um i'm not sure if it's going to rock the charity world i don't think they're that respected in the charity world by other charities but it's going to be a lot of job loss for their employees which is unfortunate but I think for the Trudeau government, which had a big platform with this charity, it was in all the schools teaching the kids about social justice issues, et cetera, et cetera. All that's gone now. And so it's a big bombshell because they had a very good run. They had the year of the prime minister. And now it does not. Well, it is time now to dig between those headlines to the stories that will you know, oftentimes get overshadowed because everyone's obsessed with everything Trump. But you shouldn't be because there are actually a lot of headlines and stories that matter to Canadians and no one digs up more than Black Locks Reporting. Tom Korski is managing editor of Black Locks Reporting and he joins me now. Good to have you, Tom. Thank you, Alex. So there's a lot of interesting news coming out after the fact, including this internal email or memo that reveals, quote, lives of Canadians were put at risk over pandemic preparedness. And this involves, you know, a, a number of people behind the scenes, uh, you know, that were saying they were urging and they were talking and sending notes to, to the highest of levels um, that we were in trouble, that we weren't prepared and that we were putting lives in jeopardy um, because we just didn't have pandemic stocks or warehouses to stock emergency supplies. And they were ignored. It's pretty damaging. The problem is they didn't tell that to the public, let alone members of parliament or senators. This is the public health agency uh, in the 1st of April sent a memo. They were just desperate for help from the army. Uh, please send men, forklifts, trucks. We need warehouse space, anything. Time is of the essence, they wrote, quote, unquote. Uh, delay will mean putting lives at risk. This was two weeks into the pandemic by a strange coincidence of timing. The same agency the day before testified in the Commons Health Committee. And you know what they said to MPs and the public, Alex? They said, everything's fine. We've got this nailed. Sure, we're working hard, but we're on it. 
we're, we're getting it done. And they weren't getting it done internally. They were going to pieces. I don't know how we don't wind up without a judicial inquiry when all the dust settles. Well, it's interesting because certainly, you know, the, the narrative so far, as you well know, has been, well, the Trudeau government's done a very good job in dealing with this pandemic, to which I argue, well, they were caught very flat footed, you know, for months, weeks. Patty Hyde, the health minister herself, was saying, we're prepared. It's all low risk. Dr. Tam was saying the same message. But the reality is, now that we're learning, we weren't at all prepared and it was never low risk. And and. Minister Haidu has ordered this independent review of the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, yet again, a system set up to warn us about world pandemics set up after SARS. And again, um, it was all ignored. All this, you know, we don't didn't have that resource available because they decided to put, uh, I guess, the analysts on it somewhere else. But how could they have been caught this badly flat footed and then openly lied about how ready we were? And that's the question that has been asked by uh, legislators, by unions, nurses, doctors, by provinces, by people, two million of them who lost their jobs, and by families of almost 10,000 pandemic victims. These are people who died. What went wrong? It wasn't money. They had a lot of money. It wasn't leadership. They had a lot of leadership. They had nothing but staff. And they had nothing but money and they didn't get the job done. And internally, they put it in those stark terms, their lack of preparedness put Canadian lives at risk. Holy moly, Loretta, that's the only reason we had the public health agency. Mm -hmm. They were the fire department. When the the warehouse district goes up in flames, don't stand there and tell us how hard the job is. That was their job and they failed. But this is the government of scientists. They back their scientists. They'll never censor their scientists. They'll never quiet their scientists. And here you have a number of scientists behind the scenes waving all these red flags and being absolutely ignored. Failure of the public health agency, my opinion, my two cents, is so catastrophic that once this thing runs its course, who knows when? But someone has to get to the bottom of this, and I think you need a judge, and you have to summon testimony, use subpoenas if you have to, and get people under oath. What Was money misappropriated, in other words, for climate change ventures or other politically sexy ventures? We don't know. They didn't ignore, uh, they didn't abide by their own audit reports to get ready, and in fact, Uh, Weeks before the virus broke out in Wuhan, China, they told the Minister of Health, we are so prepared, we we amaze ourselves, we're so prepared, we can fill any order for personal protective equipment within 24 hours. They're days into an actual pandemic, not an exercise, and they're begging the army for help, and they're saying, if you don't send help, people are going to die. What a catastrophe. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of many reasons Trudeau would likely like to get an election now, um, you know, while none of this is really mainstream and certainly, um, you know, get a majority government and make sure that all of these investigations go away because they will not play well for his particular uh, government. A couple of other headlines that caught my eye. Attorney General uh, David Lametti getting a slap on the wrist. This is not a small thing. Judges don't generally do this. But he basically came out and said this bill, C-17, which allows changes to things like the uh, emergency wage subsidy or CERB, was written so that the Justice Department could basically put its hands all over it and unilaterally interfere. 
Very rare. This is the uh, Federal Court of Appeal. That's the highest court in the country, just below the Supreme Court. And uh, Attorney General Lametti came up with this bill, the Time uh, Limits Act bill, and he sold this in explanatory notes to uh, uh, Senate and the House of Commons. As you know, COVID has disrupted normal civil court proceedings. What are these proceedings? These are people like taxpayers who are challenging Canada revenue assessments in tax court. These are people who have issues with the government of Canada, and you file a lawsuit in federal court. It's just so hard. It's so hard, Alex, that Lametti said, we just want to freeze proceedings. We're going to slap a six-month moratorium. And the Federal Court of Appeal lost its mind. They said, you're interfering in procedure. We're, we're going to stick with our court orders. Your bill is unlawful. And furthermore, it's self-serving. Guess who the defendant is in three quarters of those federal court cases? It's Lametti's department. Mm. It was completely craven. He got busted by the Court of Appeal. That bill is dead. I um, have to say, outside of lawyer circles, very few people and yourself, have, have most people have not paid attention to this. Thank you for raising it. It's a big deal. You know, everyone is Trump obsessed. If Trump introduced a bill like oh, yeah. that, I could just imagine what CNN would be saying. Right, exactly. The things that he's accused of doing, our government actually is doing. I mean, it's, I mean, for whatever reason, and thankfully I cover the courts, so I follow these kinds of things, whether it's SNC, uh, Mark Norman, or now this, they have a hard time not playing with the rule of law in this country. And it should be deeply troubling to Canadians, but hey, Trump. So. Um, <laughs> glad you guys covered it, got it out there. And uh, Tom, Always appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. That is Tom Korski, Managing Editor over, of course, at Blacklocks Reporting, which is subscription-based, and it is worth every penny because you get lots of goods in there. Well, it is a dirty job, but I think we should be glad that they're doing it. And uh, one of the ways that COVID-19 can be spread, as we've talked about, is through fecal matter. I mean, it's gross, but it is true, and that's why we are told, wash your hands. And the other reason is because it's gross if you don't do that. But there's a group of researchers at Ontario Tech who are testing samples of wastewater in the Durham region with the hope that they can help public health units determine if there is infection in a community. And then they hope that the research will let them target resources to attend to it in that region. Professor Danina Simmons is an assistant prof professor of faculty of Science Canada and research chair with Ontario Tech University, and she joins me now. Good to have you, Professor. Hi there. <laughs> All right. So, look, uh, it's not new. I mean, I think they've done this in other countries. I just didn't realize it was being done here. Explain to me how um, this particular process works and, and, and how it's effective. So, basically, using virtually the same technology that we use to test individuals for the virus, we can also test for the presence of the virus in wastewater. And this is because when people are sick, not only do the viral particles stick to our, our you know, nasal and mucus surfaces and sometimes come out in our breath when we sneeze or cough, we can also um, come out through our urine and our feces, mostly the feces. And so uh, that means that there's virus in the wastewater. And um, 
Now, it may take a few days from your toilet to get to the wastewater treatment plant. And usually by then, the, vac- the virus is not active anymore. Mm-hmm. But there are, still, there are still components of it left that we can measure. Right. Okay. So not to be too gross about this, because every city, um, you know, in industrialized uh, nations have waste, um, you know, facilities that that process all this stuff. Um, Some are bigger than others, but I'm trying to figure out how this would work. So you're basically taking samples from these waste processing centers. But how does that, I mean, given that there's such a low, um, you know, reading, but how would you be able to target and identify given, I would think, you know, in a big urban center like Toronto, you have no idea where it's, what toilet it's coming from uh, and particularly where it would be coming from. So how do you narrow it down? Well, if we start at the wastewater treatment plant, we are definitely capturing a large population and there's no way to narrow it down from there. But you can move further into what we call the sewer shed or the catchment. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's basically going to manholes. <laughs> All right. I didn't even think of that as an option. But okay, so you're doing both the bigger studies and then you can go into the into the catch basins themselves. And are there particular regions? I mean, why is this study being done in the particular region you're working at now? And, and take me through the process as to where you find, um, you know, the data and and where you find the value. Okay, so um, that was a lot to answer. I'll start from the beginning, I think. (laughs) The, so this project started here in Durham region um, because there is a a local company, coal wastewater engineering company uh, that approached the university and asked if we would be interested in working on this with them. And so myself and also Dr. Andrea Kirkwood and Dr. Jean-Paul Bessonnier agreed. And they've actually come up with much of the funding to help start this project. And mm. we're able to get two postdoctoral fellows who can do the research. And we're also part- partnered with, and it's, this is really critical, with Durham Region. And right. because we're partnering with the municipal uh, uh, government, they're helping us out. So they're helping to collect the samples for us. Uh, they even pasteurize the samples to make sure that they're safe for us to handle. And then we bring them to the university and work on them. And um, the goal is to develop a method that um, works really well. And then once we're, we've identified, we know that we can identify the virus in the wastewater from the larger plants, we will then work also with Durham Region to go into specific neighborhoods and we would never go be able to capture down to the individual home or toilet level uh, but i think the 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 idea is that we could narrow down by postal code for instance or even better um focus on um large um buildings that right. are of interest like schools or hospitals or long-term care facilities and certainly into areas because we've got the data to show that, you know, those in vulnerable communities and, and a lot of times those are areas where there are a lot of um, apartment buildings where people kind of live on top of each other. You could then target into areas like that. Uh, and like, then, of course, follow it up by sending testing centers. And I mean, that's the ultimate goal is to kind of target and focus um, the data and the collection and the tracing to those areas. Yes. And. So the great thing about this, which I think was another question you asked, but I had not gotten to, is that um, the cost per sample is relatively similar to testing an individual. And so, you know, public health 
um, has had to um, be careful with how they use their funds and resources for testing, of course. And that's why there's sort of a protocol before you go to get a test, do you meet any of these criteria? And um, what we could do is include this as criteria. So if we saw a building or a neighborhood that had a high amount of virus in the wastewater, public health could focus their effort there. Instead of having to test everyone in the population, they could go into a, a more focused neighborhood or building. Right. It's interesting because, as you mentioned, it's not a provincial. It's not a provincial initiative. So this is not something you're being paid to do by the government. So you're working with these other teams using their resources, and I guess the ultimate goal would be then to show the province, look, this is what we can do, and then once they approve it or see the value in it, they can then inject a whole bunch more money into it. My question would be, um, how quickly do you think something like this could come to market? Given we are talking a lot about a second wave. So this is a great question. And you really, I just got shivers. You hit the nail on the head. We were having this exact discussion with Durham Region today, like how can we engage the province on this and what's the right time to do it? And so uh, in our particular uh, group, because of the funding we have and we really re only recently got started, we are hoping to have the method um, perfected within the next couple of months. And um there are different people. We're actually we're part of what's called the Ontario Hub. <laughs> there are different people working on this in Ottawa, Waterloo, uh, at Ryerson in Toronto, as well as in Windsor. And we meet weekly to discuss our progress. And some teams are just starting and some teams have actually already gotten a method that worked. And so honestly, if if the province were able to come up with a plan, we are already forming a pretty decent network. And it I don't know how long it would take, but I would hope that perhaps by January, uh, everyone could be on board, or at least we could pick a few pilot cities, the ones that have already started, like Waterloo, Guelph, uh, Toronto, Windsor, Ottawa, and of course, Durham Region. And certainly, you know, it wouldn't just be this particular situation it can be used in, but other Oh, dare I say it, if it ever happens, but other health outbreaks that happen. But it's interesting because you guys have done a lot of the heavy lifting. Now it's just a matter of getting it to market. Um, and and it, it may not solve all the problems, but certainly becomes yet another tool in, in helping trace this thing and, um, you know, more accurately get the testing done and, and target it and treat it. Yeah, and you really, um, again, you've got a really great understanding of this topic. Uh, How do I fake it, uh, Professor, but nonetheless, appreciate it. <laughs> but, but the thing is that um, from the perspective, yes, other countries have been doing this, and it's not new science. It's relatively new. People have been doing this for about a decade. But if we were to set this up, this could, in the long run, help us to monitor many different health um, issues general things like the flu, uh, new pandemic viruses like the coronavirus. And then there's actually a wealth of information in the wastewater that people don't realize. We can detect things like pharmaceutical drugs and other health biomarkers and really get a feel for how the population's doing overall without being uh, without having the need to go into specific individual data. Well, it's a fascinating project. And again, I mean, I, I was fooled by the headline into what it was, but it, it is incredibly good work. And I hope it does get to market because, uh, you know, once uh, and we've even talked about fish and, and other wildlife who are getting sick by, by what we put down um, our drains. 
you don't have to apologize. I have to apologize. My child's iPad is going off relentlessly because his children, his friends keep calling. Um, okay. But I appreciate you joining us and, and I'll, I'll follow this journey and see how quickly we can get it to market. Oh, that would be amazing. And thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. That is uh, Professor Danina Simmons uh, joining us to chat about that. And uh, again, it, it won't solve everything, but it certainly give us another tool, um, you know, to use. And it's not just a one-time thing. So it's interesting research that they are doing. Great to have you here with us on this Wednesday. And um, look, no question, everyone has been affected by COVID-19. But the hit's been harder on some. And the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has been crunching the numbers. And we've heard this now for some time, but they bolster these findings that women have been hurt the most during this particular pandemic, either losing more jobs than any other group or fewer are actually being hired back. In fact, the numbers that they're seeing are the worst we've seen in 30 years, with experts now kind of renaming this recession a she-session. And there are a number of factors. First of all, women work in hospitality and you know sectors that bear the brunt of this shutdown. There are also things like childcare issues that forced a lot of women to stay home and tend to children because, of course, most times women make less money than their spouse. But there are more. Claudia DeSante is a senior policy analyst with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and you were part of this particular study. It's called the She Covery Project, confronting the gendered economic impacts of COVID-19 on Ontario. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. What's interesting about this particular downturn is that it's like no other that we've seen. I mean, in 2008, the turndown mainly affected men because there was such a hit to sectors like finance, the energy sector. But this time, it's a totally different complexion because we're talking about service jobs that women hold, things like restaurants or hospitality, hotel, those kinds of jobs. It's true. A lot of the face-to-face sectors were most affected by government restrictions uh, related to COVID-19, and those jobs are typically held by women. Uh, So we did see very different impacts than we did in 2008. What's interesting is that, um, or what's shocking, is that a lot of those jobs will not return. So our report is really focused on long-term solutions to overcome both the immediate challenges related to the crisis, but also longer term, how do we make sure that women's economic empowerment is at the forefront of government decision-making, that women are employed in in occupations uh, that uh, are diverse, and that next time we do face a crisis, we're not seeing impacts that are concentrated on particular groups the way we are today. Oh God! Don't let let's not talk about future crises because we're still in this one. I can't I can't bear the thought of another one. But you know, it hadn't really dawned on me. Uh, but female business owners also hit harder because their businesses are generally smaller and less well financed than those uh, owned or operated by men. But your study also reveals that uh, while women dominate the online the frontline responses, so things like long term care, healthcare jobs. They're not included in the plan to recover. And when you think about the government in charge, which, you know, considers it the feminist government, uh, it's interesting now that you look at the research and the data that we're learning that that really there is no plan unless something comes out on September 23rd that can rebuild these sectors. That's right. For us, women's economic recovery is 
really a precondition to Ontario's economic recovery. So there is a sense of urgency now. If we don't see a plan to include uh, these challenges that we've outlined in the report, to address them in economic recovery, we may risk setting the clock back on women's workforce participation in the long term. And, and that would be devastating for Ontario's economy. But we are encouraged. We know that government understands that, that this is a real challenge, uh, not just for women, but for, for everyone, for their economy. Um, and we are also encouraged by how quickly they've moved over the past few months to address other concerns that we've raised. So we're working closely with both the provincial and federal governments to make sure that there are some concrete action plans in place. And part of that is having women at the decision-making tables, which is important both within government and within the private sector, um, and that the issues uh, related to childcare and workforce reskilling and entrepreneurship are all on the agenda when it comes to economic recovery, because the issues are diverse. And so it, it really affects every uh, aspect of economic recovery planning. Uh, and part of it is just the way that you think about economic recovery. Uh, and that's where a lot of our, our report is focused. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that in the next election, whenever that might be, um, there's going to have to be, as you say, a recovery that doesn't just appeal to all, but certainly can answer questions as to, you know, and certainly as we look at possibly going into a second wave, maybe another shutdown, um, you know, what options are going to be available? Because what this pandemic, as you well know, ha has exposed are the many, many cracks in the system, be it healthcare, long-term care, but certainly in the area of childcare. Um, and, and it depends on where you live, certainly in the downtown urban centers, it's either too expensive and there's not enough spaces available to it. But in the rural areas, they have the same problems where there may not be as many spaces. And so a lot of women just have to stay home and work. And as we've all learned, working at home with children is nearly impossible, if not, um, you know, a, a leading to um, uh, several breakdowns. But it, it has, to, there has to be a plan not to give childcare or, or subsidize it, but make a system that that we can somehow work with. It's true. And you're right to point out that there are differences geographically. What we've also found is that uh, women employed in, in shift work have more challenges related to childcare because daycare centers aren't open uh, at night or they're not open until 8 p.m. when they might have to take a shift. So women are at a disadvantage in particular sectors as well, all parents, but we've seen that more with women. Um, so if we want to get serious about increasing women's representation in certain sectors, we also need to address the childcare challenge. And then on the other side, with reskilling, with opportunities for retraining, there are lots of programs in place. But time and time again, we hear that uh, women can't participate as much as men because they have to pick up their children. And these programs are often uh, at 5 p.m. Uh, so we need to think about a child care in the way that it's integrated with other workforce challenges. Um, and, and you rightly mentioned that it doesn't have to be fully subsidizing the system. In fact, our report looks at a few different international examples of what's been done done. Um, South Korea is a, a model that is market-based, so mm -hmm. it, it's not universally funded, but it provides a lot of choice for parents, and very high quality care, and uh, it, it is quite um, affordable and accessible. So we need to look at different models, and we've been talking about this for quite some time, but now businesses, chambers of commerce are starting to say this is starting to affect our ability to uh, hire talent, to keep the workforce productive, um, and it's time to really do something.
You know, one of the greatest needs that we have are in the trades. And I don't know when it became so unsexy. I mean, I'm a tomboy, so I love like I love tinkering around the house and that. But there is a huge need in the job market for trades. Uh, there's no reason that women can't do it. Is there any thought to to, you know, pushing and, and showing and revealing uh, to women? You know, if there are jobs there and there are certainly jobs that can be done by women to fulfill the, these key areas that are. Uh, you know, going through labor shortages? This is such an important opportunity for Ontario. There's so much growth in the trades jobs. They're also high paying jobs. They're not all um, dirty, mechanical. Uh, I don't know, the stereotype people associate with trades uh, is often not the case. Um, they require creative creativity, skills that uh, women typically are stereotyped to possess. Um, they require a lot of uh, stereotypically women's skills, but there is that um, gender norm that prevents young girls from entering those career pathways. Uh, so we need a, a strategy that really addresses the barriers that begin in elementary school. Um, mm -hmm. We also need uh, programs that uh, allow women to continue participating through the apprentice straight stage and through to the hiring stage. And that really requires um, some collaboration on the part of employers, unions, and government, and training institutions. So we're seeing more of that, um, but the barriers are many, and they're not just concentrated uh, along one part of the career pipeline. So it's time to kind of really consider where all the, the challenges are for women in the trades. In my next life, I will pick up a trade because if we've learned nothing out of this pandemic, if you can do jobs with your hands and you can fix stuff and you can do those kinds of things, there is work uh, and, and lots of it to be had. Fascinating study, Claudia. I'm sure we'll be getting more data as it comes out, but certainly a challenge um, moving forward. But I'll be interested to see how the recovery goes. I appreciate your time on this. Thanks so much for your interest. That is Claudia DeSanti. And uh, the project is, well, it is about getting women back into the force in this recovery and coming up with plans moving forward that work, uh, you know, in the future. Are we heading into a second wave? And what happens if we have another shutdown? Uh, we are hearing more and more talk of this as the case numbers go up. And, you know, the polling apparently suggests that 75 percent, you know, the majority of people would rather another shutdown for, you know, our safety. But, you know, if you're in the private sector, you were rocked by COVID-19 in the first shutdown and you're barely hanging on. So this would certainly be a death blow, but we're seeing Australia, parts of Europe now shut down. And then of course, BC announcing it's gonna shut down things like banquet halls, as well as uh, reduced bar hours. And sure, programs like CERB went out to millions successfully, we hear it all the time, but months later into this thing, businesses are still waiting for things like rent relief, which has been a disaster and low programs that haven't been any better. So if a second wave comes, I don't think we're prepared. Dan Kelly would know better than anybody else, president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Good to have you, Dan. Happy to be with you. When you hear of talk kind of so casually about a second wave, what should people understand about that? Well, the first thing that people should know is that uh, the, the economic fallout of the first wave is, is not yet wrapped up. There remains at this stage, six months after the start of the pandemic, one third of businesses that are either fully closed or partially closed still. 
And, and even of those that are open, our data shows that, that only about 75% of, uh, sorry, that 75% of businesses are still not at normal sales volumes. Only about a quarter are back to normal sales. And, and what that means is that for, for most or, or many businesses, they are losing money every single day they are open. And the question is, how long can they do that? Um, mm. and, and if there's another round of shutdowns, my goodness, you know, those bankruptcy numbers that we're estimating right now, we, we figure there's going to be about 160,000 businesses permanently closed, but that, that number could skyrocket if there's another round of, of shutdown as has happened as it started, I guess, in British Columbia with some of the news for the hospitality industry. Yeah, I mean, they've just been rocked and they're just, uh, you know, trying to get whatever they can before winter moves in. And of course, for restaurants, you know, that means they might not have, uh, you know, the in-dining that, that you know, they, they need to, to survive. Um, but, you know, we hear so much about the CERB program, what a success it was. Uh, I'm not so sure I believe that it was a success because, of course, we're hearing all the stories about how employers can't get people back to work. But the other programs that I mentioned, the loan program, certainly the rent relief, those have been a disaster and none of them have been fixed. I mean, they're now saying they're extending the rent relief, but that would have been nice to know maybe eight days ago when the rent was due. You're, you're absolutely right. That program has been the, the biggest mess. Look, uh, again, I'm sympathetic to government to a point when they did the shutdown, you know, the world was falling off a cliff. Nobody knew quite what to do. So they did a blunt instrument. They, they shut down the vast majority of small and medium sized firms right across the country. Um, and they didn't have any support programs in place to, to help them make it across the finish line. That was understandable to an extent, and, and they did get there with certain programs after a whole bunch of pressure. The wage subsidy program seems to be working reasonably well. They did extend it out until December, so I give the feds credit for that. But these other programs, unfortunately, have just not delivered the way that they should. The SIBA loan program, um, $40,000 interest-free loans for small business owners, it's been helpful for some, uh, but there are still tens of thousands of businesses that have remained, unfortunately, locked out of the program for a variety of reasons. And the rent support program you mentioned just a second ago, that one really has been a giant mess. It, it requires you as a merchant to get your landlord to apply for a loan that can then be passed along in the form of rent relief to your business. Most landlords have said, forget it, I'm not going to participate as a result. The, the, the tenant is getting zero. And that's now in month six. So gosh, if we go into another round of shutdowns of parts or, or parts of the economy, we need to make sure that these programs are there to help businesses make it. You know, and and as you know, my organization is not one that that has got its hand out calling for government subsidies under normal circumstances. We never do that. Mm. The only reason that this is important right now is that government is essentially passing rules and, and laws that are forcing businesses to close to protect society. And as a result of that, it would be deeply unfair, in my opinion, to, to, to say that the costs of that have to be borne by those very small business owners that are just trying to make a living. You know, no one will argue the safety uh, or health consequences or having to control this thing. I mean, if it has to be done or, you know, whether or not it has to be done as draconian as it was the first time around, I think there's a lot of debate around that. Um, but why is there such a disconnect for people? I mean, is it because we're still subsidizing so many people that we haven't truly felt the economic hit? I mean, 
when I saw the polling on 75% support a total shutdown again, I thought, who on earth are they asking? Because it, it, it might have seemed like it worked the first time, but again, because all these programs failed and we're now six months into um, businesses basically borrowing, begging, and stealing anything they can to stay afloat. I mean, why is there such a disconnect with uh, people as to what's going on f- for businesses in this country? Well, look, I, I think the economic damage has yet to be fully felt. Um, though There are a lot of essentially dead businesses that, that really haven't just wound down yet. They haven't declared bankruptcy yet, in part because COVID is still uh, with us and, and, you know, some, and, and every process, including government processes, are delayed, delayed, delayed. But once that happens, I mean, these businesses are not going to be able to hold on forever. Many of them are trying to use whatever savings they have, the, the, the mortgage of the, the business owner, him or herself, to try to squeak through uh, and live for brighter days. If those brighter days don't come, though, that's when these business owners are going to basically give up, give it up. And, and if, when they do that, people lose jobs, governments lose revenues, tax revenues. Um, and of course, the business owners, the impact on the business owner and his or her family is absolutely massive. So we need to make sure that just as there were supports for, for workers that, that didn't have incomes during the co- worst of the COVID emergency, that these support programs for phase one are delivering as they should. There's some unfinished business there. But also, if a government's going to announce that there is a shutdown of business X or sector Y, they have to, on that very same day, have the economic supports in place available to those businesses uh, to, to, to insulate them from the worst of this effect. Right. And, and from what we've heard, as far as the throne speech and the recovery plans, they plan to you know go bold and, uh, I guess, do all things uh, green and, and whatever. I know there'll be a lot of, of, of money spent. I'm just not sure it will be targeted at the areas that actually need it. And that is uh, you know saving the small businesses. And if there is a shutdown, as you well know, the Costco's, the Loblaws, those places will stay open. They're not the ones I worry about. It is those grocery stores, the smaller stores, the retail spaces, the restaurants. I just don't see them ever being able to come back. Um, And even if, you know, we get out of this thing, it will, I think our our neighborhoods and communities will forever be changed. You're 100% right. Uh, We're predicting one in seven businesses across Canada will shut their doors forever. And that's before a second wave. Uh, one in seven. Think about that as we, mm. you know, as people drive around and look at all the terrific independent businesses in their neighborhoods. In fact, many people have chosen a home to be close to independent restaurants and shops, uh, especially in in a city as vibrant as Toronto. If if we take these players out, there's not likely to be a whole bunch of people in the short term rushing to fill those spaces. Yeah, and and the gaps that we're going to have uh, are, are really going to be with us for a long, long time. And so, look, we want to make sure that we minimize any uh, any need for shutdown. So we do, of course, have to take this seriously. Employers get that. Um, but at the same time, if there are further shutdowns, if those do become necessary, we need to make sure that the supports are there to help the businesses get across the finish line. And we need to do that not just to support the business, but really to support us all. Uh, these are sources of huge numbers of jobs for Canadians, for huge amounts of tax revenues. Um, and, and that becomes absolutely critical. It, it, is, it is really unfair to expect a business owner uh, to pay their rent 
because they were required to shut down yeah. to protect society. That just doesn't that just doesn't sit well, and and we can't allow that to happen. Just quickly before I let you go, you've got an awful lot of members. I mean, you must hear from them often. Have a lot of them just given up hope, or are they still fighting? Uh, most are still fighting. We we expect that by the end of the year, we could have. Uh, my association has one hundred and ten thousand members. Uh, and we expect that we could we could see 10,000, potentially 15,000 of our members no longer there. Uh, and, and obviously, we as an association have to figure out how we're going to address that gap because we represent independent businesses. The other thing that, of course, we factor in is, yes, businesses do fail even in the best of times, but they're often replaced with people who are starting up businesses. That's an open question if anybody is willing to take the plunge right now in the kind of economy with all the risks that we have right now, are our new business entrants going to come in to replace some of those businesses that close? I don't see that happening in the short term. No, and we've heard that from a number of economists at this point, that this is gonna be a very slow and very, very bumpy ride. Well, Dan, we'll see what happens and if this government can get its act together on these programs, but uh, I'm afraid for many, it's gonna be too little too late, but I do appreciate your time uh, joining us. Anytime. That is Dan Kelly, who pretty much works uh, 24 hours a day fighting for small businesses because once they're gone, they're gone. And so while everyone says, yes, we support a second shutdown, and it's not as easy as that. This is, it's not about businesses. These are people. These are families. These are neighbors of yours in the communities. You know, put yourself in their shoes. It's just not as easy as shutting the doors. That is your podcast for today. Of course, you can join us on Point Live Monday through Friday, 630 to 10. Talk to you soon. Alex Pearson.